0: We're restarting. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Josiah's Podcast. I'm your host, Joel. With me, as always, is Potter Edmund, and joining us is the wonderful Pedro. Pedro, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: It's so good to have you back. You were on a little while ago, and uh, this time we'll be talking about empire and sovereignty and... Nationalism. Yeah, nationalism, all that good stuff, and... uh, First, uh, Potter, you chose this piece by Brahms. Uh, why did you choose it? What's the, what's the connection, and can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, this uh, is Brahms' Variations on a Theme by Josef Haydn. And uh, as usual, I chose it for kind of accidental reasons. <laughs> Namely, <laughs> <laughs> I heard this piece at a, a concert in Vienna, the, the Berlin Philharmonic, once a year, they do this thing called the Europe Concert, the Europa Concert, in a different European capital, and it's supposedly, you know, in the service of European unity or whatever. And this time, it was in uh, well, this was a few years back, but it was in the the Spanish Riding School in Vienna, uh, which they transformed into a concert hall for this concert. And Gustavo Dudamel, the South American conductor, conducted, and uh, the Spanish Riding School in Vienna is a beautiful um, sort of representation of imperial thought. You have the the well, the whole idea of the tamer of horses, like Hector, the tamer of horses, is a, a picture of right. sort of mm-hmm. human rule. Uh, and then in the Spanish writing school, that ideal of rule, reason ruling over the passions, is extended in principle, over the whole world. So the emperor is supposed to be ruling the whole world the way the reason rules the passions in a single person.
0: Why do they do it? Uh, how did they come to choose such an unlikely location as the Spanish writing school?
2: Well, it's kind of a gimmick thing. The the Europe concert of the Berlin Philharmonic, they they always choose sort of some landmark that's typical of the city that they give their Europe concert in. Uh, and it's never an actual concert hall. So I think in, in Athens, they did it in the Parthenon or whatever. And then in Vienna, was the Spanish writing school.
0: So sort of a, uh, a capitalism, uh, capitalistic uh, stunt for the television ratings?
2: Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the idea is also that that Euro- the European Union sort of carries on, in their estimation, sort of the tradition of Europe. And so they, they take these landmarks of sort of European culture, the Parthenon and Athens is sort of representing Athena, the goddess of reason, and then the Spanish writing school representing the ideal of super national unity that the Holy Roman Empire uh, represents and so on.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's the piece itself is just lovely and uh, it's sort of appropriate that it's, you know, variations on a the theme of Haydn is, I mean, uh, Haydn wrote the uh, most Famous imperial tune I can think of is uh, uh, What's it called? I'm blanking on the name The Kaiser Hymne Yes, uh, yes The anthem of the the old empire So let's talk about empire I I was thinking So there's a couple There's many, many ways to start And I was, as usual Waffling and uh, delaying Deciding how to start And then it became time And we started But maybe I'll uh, ask this question Aristotle says in book seven of the politics that a state when composed of too few is not as a state ought to be self-sufficing. One of too many, though self-sufficing in all mere ne- necessaries, as a nation may be, it is not a state being almost incapable of constitutional government. And then he gives a sort of goofy example of, uh, uh, not being able to be heard by a big multitude, uh, Uh, such as a herald, wouldn't be able to have a loud enough voice. But then he says, Experience shows that a very populous city can rarely, if ever, be well governed, since all cities which have a reputation for good government have a limit of population. We may argue on grounds of reason, and the same result will follow. For law is order, and good law is good order, but a very great multitude cannot be orderly, to introduce order into the unlimited, is the work of a divine power, of such a power as holds together the universe. So my question is: Isn't he right? Isn't, uh, isn't, aren't these huge modern nations? And let's, you know, take as granted that modern technology makes it possible to be bigger than Athens was. But aren't they sort of? Disordered, and don't you see the best governments still being in the smaller states?
2: I think there is a lot of evidence for that, and you can see that even in Imperial Rome, which has, which you know, in its in its greatest propagandist, in Virgil, it, you you see the ideal of extending the the political ideals of the Greek polis to a universal community. But in Rome, as it actually existed, you have a great deal of sort of, sort of alienation from the common good both in, in Stoicism and, and in Epicureanism, there's a kind of, both of those philosophies are sort of the philosophies of people who lack you know, <laughs> real participation in the common good and they sort of have to come up with this <laughs> ersatz uh, way of living a human life.
0: Right. So yeah, I, 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 thinking about America, America is such a huge country in terms of size and in terms of population. It's really, uh, you know, it's really quite vast, and if you look at what Aristotle's talking about, you know, pursuing, pursuing a common good together and the state being ordered to the common good, it doesn't seem like America as a whole has that sort of strong order to the common good. So, so Pedro, you're, you're a known imperialist. <laughs> <laughs> what say you? Isn't there some truth to, to Aristotle, what Aristotle's saying here? How does empire relate to this problem, if it is a real problem?
1: Well, I think I think you're right. I think he's right in the sense that the kind of political life and the kind of political common good that he's talking about—it's um, hard to imagine how it could be, you know, realized in a country like like the United States today, where you where it requires, you know, political participation and this sort of friendship between the citizens. It's impossible, obviously, because no such thing exists in the United States, at yeah, least you as can't, a whole.
0: You can't be friends with any significant portion of your fellow citizens. Right. The and, the even the most you know extroverted person is only going to be friends with a essentially meaningless fraction of the nation.
1: Correct. And the political participation you can have is also, you know, effectively meaningless. You vote. I mean, right. you, you can vent your, your, your thoughts on Twitter and get some retweets, <laughs> um, but it's not the same as going into the Ecclesia in, in Athens and, you know, being heard by the whole populace. Um, right. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's right in that sense. <clears throat> but I think the the ideal of the empire uh, at least is articulated in Virgil and in, 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 you know, in the Christian world. Uh, isn't really opposed to that isn't really saying that we're trying to create a kind of super polis it, it's it's a different i it, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's an additional level of of political order on top of the polis or com- compatible with the polis um but not not denying i think sort of the basic insight in aristotle
2: yeah i think i mean Virgil, i think uh puts a lot of emphasis on that sort of correcting In the Stoics, you have this idea that just because reason is is a universal power and there's something divine about reason, you can have, you ought to have kind of one universal polis of all rational creatures. And uh, Zeno says only only the vicious should be considered foreigners. But um, but Virgil Virgil has kind of what we would call a subsidiarist understanding of empire, where he puts a lot of emphasis on the goodness of the smaller communities that make up the greater community and sort of piety towards particular places and the, the local gods and so on. Right. So you have this, you have these cities, it's a, a, it's made up of many, the empire is made up of many cities, each of which lives an actual political life.
0: Right. right. And I think, so, um, I think this gets overblown by certain people, but uh, there's the famous distinction between how the Romans viewed the gods, where they tended more to having household gods and having gods that were very, like, you know, of this street, of this house, of this family, and the Greeks tended towards ideal, almost abstract gods that were gods of big, you know, universal themes, as it were. Uh, It's interesting that, that Virgil is able to have empire, not despite the Roman view of the gods or the more Roman view, view of the gods, but almost because of it. And I, I do think that distinction can be overblown. I don't want to make too much of it because, you know, obviously Jupiter is, is, is very powerful if you read the Aeneid. Uh, but I, I do think there's something to that, that empire in, in a Virgilian sense does have a localist subsidiary, uh, subsidiary uh, uh, sort of quality. So let me ask a, a a let me come at it a different way. Trying again to be be, be slightly provocative, is Virgil right that such a thing is po- uh, possible on a on a purely human level? What do we what do we think about this? The,
2: certain of the popes teach that in fact a universal brotherhood of men, especially I mean they're thinking of the ideals of the French Revolution: freedom, equality, and brotherhood. And initially, in the the reaction of the popes to the French Revolution the principle that they stress the most is brotherhood. And they say it's not actually possible to have true brotherhood among men after original sin, except through Christ who is able to heal us of original sin and bring about a a real common life between all men through participation in his divine life.
0: So in other words, uh, uh, on a natural level, we're not able to Aristotle's ultimate point that it would require a divine power to have a universal common good is actually the popes actually end up endorsing that, that you would need, in other words, you need God, you need uh, religion uh, ultimately to make a universal empire possible.
2: Yeah. And this is, this is a teaching that is taught not only by the popes uh, of the sort of Pai age, but it's, it's also been taught by more recent popes. So here's a quote from Pope Benedict XVI um, from Caritas in Veritate. talking about whether universal human brotherhood is possible. And he says, as society becomes ever more globalized, it makes us neighbors, but it does not make us brothers. Reason by itself is capable of grasping the equality between men and of giving stability to their civic coexistence, but it cannot establish fraternity. This originates in a transcendent vocation from God the Father, who loved us first, teaching us through the Son what fraternal charity is.
0: If it is impossible, what's going on with Rome? The, wasn't it a pagan empire, or, or is it just simply something to be condemned and it was really a, a sham?
1: I mean, I think, I think if, you, if you look at what the popes teach and what the Roman Empire um, was about, they're not really sort of the same thing. Because you know the Roman Empire, Roman Republic, when before before Augustus and after that also, it's not really based on the premise that there is a universal brotherhood and that the Roman Empire is here to establish that you know politically in the world. Um, I don't think that's what they they saw themselves as doing. Um, In fact, Roman law had all these kinds of uh, distinctions between the different kinds of people who lived. Uh, in the Roman Empire, you know, citizens and Latins and peregrines and had all kinds of different rights and the relationship between the different provinces and the different cities that Rome conquered with Rome were were, were, relation, were, were also different. Were, were relations of, 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 of were some, some were alliances, some were conquests. Um, so it's not really, a, you know, a, a seamless, uh, you know, transition from that into the Christian view
0: and And maybe we can make sort of uh, uh to play devil's advocate for a second. the liberal point would be that the reason government simply is good, but certainly the reason empire is good is simply to prevent war you know you you can uh say all you want about the common good, and maybe Athens, if it were ruled according to Aristotelian principles and if it wasn't you know putting Socrates to death, would have been a great example of the common good in, action but the problem is athens is going to be at war constantly because there's all these other states Mm
1: -hmm. and there's
0: no order between them so we're going to give up on the common good we're not going to get it instead we're going to have uh sort of we're going to stop having war and we're going to have a the thin notion of peace and that'll be enough at least we'll be able to live without you know barbarians or fellow greeks coming over the hills and burning all our crops and taking all our women and selling us into slavery. So, there's just going to be chaos and war. What you need is a strong central power, and you're not going to have a real common good in the sense that Aristotle understood it as a community of friends ruling and being ruled together, but you're going to have, at least we're not all dying every time there's a big battle and uh, because of the constant wars. Let's ignore for the fact that if you look at the last 200 years, uh, peace hasn't been... Very frequent, uh, but you know maybe we're doing better than average. Who knows? And certainly the Rome, the Pax Romana, the idea was uh, uh, they weren't at least inside the empire always at war.
1: Right. I think I think that's right, um, and I think that that is something that the Romans. I think that's sort of the, the second part of of what we can view of the as the justification for universal empire is this other view of universal peace, right? And. This is actually something Pius XI talks about in, uh, in one of his encyclicals, uh, *Ubi Arcano*. And uh, I think the Romans did share that. You know, they they, they thought that they were bringing peace to the world, uh, and 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 you know, putting all these squabbling little peoples into some kind of of order, uh, which is what the Roman people had a, a unique their unique gift was to. Was to give this peace to the world. And I think that's, <clears throat> and, and, and specifically, the way that, um, as far as I understand it, the Roman jurists saw it was through something that they called the jus gentium, the, the law of, of nations, which is sort of a, a, a law that regulates the relationships between you know, everybody, all the peoples, and the purpose of the jus gentium, or, or what the jus gentium um, is trying to achieve, is this universal peace. And this is something that Pius XI picks up on as well in, in Ubi Arcano, and, and, uh, where he talks about, you know, the necessity for international law and the, the law of nations as a kind of way to get to that peace. And so in that sense, I do think the Roman Empire is a precedent uh, to, to the Christian view of empire.
0: So wait, wait a second. You, you speak of international law. Isn't international law a contradiction in terms, Pedro? Sergio I'm sorry, grenier. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, this is a common objection, though, particularly this is a modern objection, uh, perhaps, but it's a common objection. Law is, you know, uh, so you have your sovereign and he gives you your positive law, which is law, rightly so called. Uh, International law is law between nations. So there is no sovereign. So you can't have law. You can have treaties. You can have agreements. But there's no enforcement mechanism backing up there's no reason for obedience and there's no sovereign to
1: obey but that doesn't mean there aren't rights and obligations in that sphere that's why you need an empire
0: right um so to to go back from that little uh sort of side discussion yeah. aren't we giving up a lot though if we say that uh empire is great we have peace and not peace in like the thick sense that saint augustine ends up uh uh almost having being like convertible with goodness and being itself, but peace in the sense of I'm not going to be, have my house burned by, you know, uh, 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 Viking invaders or, or whatever it is. Uh, but you're not really living. You're not really living in the highest, uh, sense. you're not really flourishing because you don't have a real, Polity behind you that's able to Direct you to the common good Does this objection Work or does it fail
2: Well I mean I think that What Pedro was arguing is that In the Ideal of empire um, That is Taken from Rome but then Transformed in Christianity You have a, a subsidiarist Idea so you have A real political life in The city uh, which is then united into a more uh, a more universal order of law. So the whole world is uh, ruled by the rule of law, um, which is a, a a real common good at a universal level. But there's also a more particular good of the particular city or nation. It's interesting that you say the Roman jurists talk there about the jus gentium, the law of nations. Um, it, it might be interesting now to discuss what exactly the nation is and how it fits into this whole structure we've talked about cities and empires but what exactly is the nation and how does that play in
0: yeah so but before we turn to that I just want to push this point a little bit further so it seems like the popes are saying two things and it seems at least seemingly there's a contradiction here either Aristotle is right that uh, you can't have rule over a very great multitude without a divine power or it's right that the uh sort of natural law so so on a natural level empire is required and it seems like the popes uh, if i'm following you right are saying both that uh there's no universal fraternity of man outside of religion outside of catholicism ultimately and that on the natural order, we need international uh, uh, empire, as, as, as Grenier arg- argues.
2: Well, I mean, this is, this is more universally true than that. It, it's always true that because of the wounds of original sin, man is not able to achieve um, in a complete way even his natural good without the healing uh, help of grace. So, without healing grace, um, man can't be even naturally happy in a complete way.
0: So, it, okay. So, it's it's the, the uh, without. So, on a natural level, we ought to have international order. We ought to have one government, but because of the wounds, we're only able to achieve any sort of natural common rule, uh, common good, uh, in smaller communities. Which leads us back to the question of so the city versus the the state or the nation, rather. Maybe it's also a good time to talk about the modern notion of uh, nation. Is that is nation here equivocal between what the ancients and the moderns meant?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look, the use the use is, is about um, <clears throat> it's really the law of peoples, the law of that rule that the, the the law that the Roman people share with, you know, the Parthians and the Egyptians and the, 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 the you know, the Germans or whatever. Um, and it's kind of talking about um, sort of the basic institutions of law that human beings as human beings can be expected to be, to share. Um, and then on top of that is the Roman law, which is specific for the, for the Roman people. Um, yeah both
2: in in latin both gens and nazio uh the two terms that we that we translate with nation they both have to do with common descent so gens is uh, comes from generation obviously genus in the first sense of genus in porphyry's right handbook it's everyone who's descended from one common ancestor and nazio comes from from being born right um so it's that it's more there where, where someone is born, the people that are born in a particular place.
1: And in in that sense, I mean, I think nation is, is, um, it's almost kind of like a a pre, a pre-political reality, right? It's just sort of where you come from, your language or your family, your your clan, uh, you know, whether you were born in, in, uh, in this place or that it's, it's not really talking about, uh, political order or political organization. Um, as such, Whereas the modern notion, um, it does. Uh, it sort of makes a political right. claim based on that.
0: And that, that bears an interesting resemblance and difference from Aristotle's uh, description of how the state arises. He gives a sort of historical, but also sort of just going from elements to wholes, parts to whole. When he talks about you have your family and the family in order to uh, uh, live Needs to, to to provide for the necessities of life ends up becoming a village. So you get multiple families because one family alone, obviously, you're going to be on the brink of starvation. All these problems, and then you get a little village. And then, in order to live well, many villages will come together, and you'll get the city. The the uh, which is where he takes uh, the political rule to really be taking place. Whereas the description of the nation almost seems like. Well, you don't just have one village, you have a whole almost group of villages, a whole people in a certain area who end up sharing common language, common geography. There's enough to say that, you know, you have this nation versus that nation uh, because of whatever factors make them
1: unified. Right. Right. I mean, the Greeks themselves, I think, together, were right. probably a nation. In that sense. Right. And Aristotle very much... Uh, and they saw themselves as such. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Aristotle definitely thinks the Greeks and the uh, barbarians are
1: not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. <laughs> right. And you
0: have,
2: I mean, you have certain things that, like the, I mean the, the Homeric epics um, are in in part about sort of the unity of the Greek um, exactly. cities as sort right. of being one. Right. Um, right, and it's an interesting sort of universal destiny over there.
0: <laughs> yes. Right. It's an interesting sort of unity. Because you can contrast it with what Virgil does uh, when he talks about. So, so Homer always seems to be a bit uh, Heraclitian. Uh, when you read him, he seems to be very, uh, you know, Troy is here today, and the Greeks are sacking Troy, and tomorrow someone's going to come, and we know they're going to sack the Greek towns. And, you know, today I'm <laughs> taking this slave woman, and tomorrow. I'll have been killed and some, you know, the gods will turn on me, the fickle gods, and someone will be taking her off to a different bed. And that's, you know, so there's this sort of eternal conflict that seems to underlie Homer. And he gives a sort of unity of the Greek people, but it's a very weak unity because they're always at each other's throats throughout the entire thing.
2: It's not a juridical unity i mean you have a few you have a few things you've got the olympic games where there's always a truce between the greek cities but apart from apart from the olympic games um they're always fighting each other
0: (laughs) and the leaders are so terrible agamemnon is like the worst leader ever and then i don't know if this is this is a good reading or not but it's because uh, Homer is so sort of fatalistic, like, you know, you could be wise. And if the gods are against you, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, but if you look at Nestor, he's always, oh, he's so wise. And then the advice he gives
1: like, <laughs> invariably,
0: <laughs> immediately,
1: <laughs> terrible. And I think the Romans, the Romans come in and say, look at these wise people and how they're incapable of, you know, basic, basic peace, even among themselves. So that's our role in history and to bring all these these people into order so and that Virgil, they can live a better life than they themselves are capable of giving themselves. Right.
0: Virgil and mm-hmm. Virgil bases it on piety, right? That's the, the, the reason Aeneid is able to found Rome is because he has, uh, such piety. What, yeah. why, what is it about piety that makes Aeneid, uh, Aeneas rather. Yes. <laughs> uh, Aeneas, uh, uh, able to found Rome, which has this world historic destiny.
2: Well, I think he sees piety as being able to overcome the, the conflict we've been talking about between the particular and the universal. That in piet, for the pious man, you can see um, he's pious towards, towards the highest things, uh, but he also can understand and integrate the piety towards ancestors and local gods and so on. So he can bring everything into unity he's let, let me read you one passage um from the Aeneid. This is from book one um, and he's Virgil always is always trying to do give you these Homeric similes, but they 're completely different than in Homer because in homer it's just sort of it's this sort of raw poetic power he sh- he really sort of paints right. a picture for you whereas in Virgil there's always kind of this theoretic agenda behind the simile <laughs> right so here here we go. This is uh, actually C.S. Lewis's translation of the Aeneid, his unfinished translation. As when in mighty commonwealth the rascal crowd, stirred to rebellion, raises off their voice aloud, and ready to their mischief find both fire and stone, if chance some graver citizen for merits known pass by, they strain to hear him and are silent all, and at his words corrected their wild passions fall. So fell the rage of waters when their father's eye looked forth, and to his horses under cloudless sky, giving loose rain, he roiled along the briny floor so he's talking about Neptune there um quieting the waves, and the the comparison is to the citizen who is um grave and pious so it's uh there it's it's it gives him a kind of his his piety and merit gives him a kind of authority that is respected even by the mob
0: and it's interesting because aquinas when he talks about piety will will talk about the cult the the cultus uh uh of uh due first of all to god but then to our parents and to our nation this is uh frequently uh Quoted passage by various Americanists. If you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever argued with them, they'll they'll accuse you of of impiety, pretty quickly. At least that's my experience. Exactly, Maybe we're we against the, <laughs> against our, our nation.
2: But it's strange. I mean, America is is even in modern, even under the modern concept of nation, America is kind of a strange case because if you look at, I mean, you you get kind of. In the Middle Ages, you have, especially in England and in France, you have the beginning of a co-extension of a nation and a juridical society. The Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of France uh, are sort of co-extensive with the nation of England and the nation of France. And then in modernity, you have this desire in many parts of Europe to replicate that. You have this idea that comes right. to, you know, violent head in World War One of the the self-determination of nations. I mean, you have the 19th century is the, the the golden age of this kind of thing with the Risorgimento in Italy and the the various attempts at German unification where there's this, this kind of idea that there's sort of this natural destiny of the nation to become a self-determining juridical society. And America is not a nation in that sense. It's not... No. Uh, if
1: I took you the terms that, that I gleaned from your... Uh, from your post on the Empire Father, I'd say America is the Carthaginian Empire. <laughs> it's an empire oh, no. of sorts, but its principle right. is another one.
0: Oh dear. <laughs> so is that is that sacrificing babies to gods or or pursuit money? You tell well me. In, in in Virgil's
2: in Virgil's depiction of Carthage, it's more pursuing money. And it's yeah. the Carthaginians are impious in the sense that they have kind of this skeptical philosophical view of things so when when aeneas is at the court of dido dido's um minstrel sings a song that's a parody of lucretius's De Rerum natura where he sort of describes the world as this you know chaos of atoms the way everything comes about by chance and so <laughs> on and the gods have have no concern for human things and dido thinks it's kind of weird that aeneas thinks he has this divine vocation you know and, and that he's so obs- obsessed with with what the gods are telling him and so on and uh and then what the Carthaginians end up being famous for is, of course, being merchants and, and getting a lot of money. So it's on the one hand, um, uh, this kind of skeptical attitude towards the gods. And on the other hand, sort of seeing material accumulation. So materialism in both senses, theoretical and practical materialism, which is yeah I, slightly unfair yeah. view of America. Because America <laughs> does, have, does have that strand. There is that strand in America. Yeah, America is the commercial sure. nation, the get-rich-quick um, so on but you also have the america of the of this sort of calvinist settlers who who have a, a sense of a great sense of piety and you know like the lower wilder type america
0: yeah the manifest destiny and and you know which isn't solely a function of the 19th century when we had more land to go west to because you look at uh earlier in this century uh with, uh, our, uh, sort of foreign adventures in the Levant and all that. Uh, the idea was we were going to be spreading and sowing the gospel of, uh, American democracy right. and Liberty and, uh, uh you know, with it commercial press, Yeah. <laughs> with it, a part of it, you know, the churches such as Walmart and, uh, Kmart and all those sorts of things. But, Starbucks, the various uh, temples that we we have as a society, but also the idea was going to be you know these backwards people who who think that God controls everything and that they have to follow some king and some leader who will you know lead them to to spread their own religion. We've got to show them that really what they should be is good, free <laughs> democratic liberals. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Right. I
0: mean, that's sort of a that's sort of a, a, a if we think of empire as having not just a, a subsidiary where, you know, there's various nations united into one, but also as empire as being something where one nation sees itself as having some world historic destiny that it needs to go and subjugate all the other nations as Rome certainly did. Right. Yeah. As uh, Spain, which we'll talk about in a minute, may also have done. Uh but America also has that strand. Like in the 19th century, it was we've got to go colonize this new world, and in the 20th century, it's we've got to go make these backwards peoples be like us. Hold on, just a second. So, uh, on a on a technical note here, uh, should we have Elliot join? Oh yeah, Absolutely. yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. He says, just give me a second, and I'll uh, jump on.
2: So we, we, we need to eventually get to asking Pedro about what the specific role of Spain is.
0: And-
1: the salvation of the world. <laughs> 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 exactly. Actually, the more I think about it, the more I think about it. Of course, it's Spain, but the more I think about it, it's like it's almost in, in, incredible how much it's Spain, but it's also the House of Austria. Yeah, yeah. It's Spain and the Roman, and the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, right. Instantiating, up- uh, you, you know, this 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 view. You know, for accidental reasons, it turned out. It was Spain that went all, all over the world, but still, it's, it's a, it's a, they share the view because of these familial connections. I think. And also,
0: oh, hold on, Elliot has joined us. Hi, Elliot.
3: Elliot. Uh, hello. Uh, Hi, Elliot. I, I I... <laughs> so, one thing going way, way back uh, to the Greeks' account of the emergence of, of the city, um, one thing that strikes me is that. Rome wasn't the first empire, obviously, right? So you had, uh, you know, several major empires before that, uh, including the Persian and, and the uh, the Assyrian empires. And uh, we don't really think about them in, in this conversation. I, th- I think that's kind of odd because, uh, you know, they have, they have the criteria, the same qualities, really, that uh, something like the British Empire had. They covered large spots of territory they subjected them to a kind of unity of uh political rule or at least piety under an emperor um and so i i wonder if empires don't just lack uh the kind of political order um that follows in the the line from the individual to the family to the village to the city Uh, and they're just something else entirely that comes into existence because of uh, opportunities presented by an excess or an excessive difference in military power.
2: Uh, I think this is actually an argument that Augustine makes in The City of God, where he Augustine is sort of countering the Roman self-image as bringing um, sort of Greek uh, political thought to a greater perfection. And saying actually, Rome is just like the, the tyrannies of the ancient East. It's like Babylon and Assyria and so on, which are not um, the common good of their peoples, but are just domination of tyrants over the weak, and they are based mm. purely right, on which military is why power.
0: Aristotle explicitly rejects you know that sort of uh, rule because it's not the rule of it's not a political rule. It's a rule of masters over slaves.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's yeah. not for the benefit of the subjects. There is a claim yeah, of universal
1: right. uh, 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 rule that I mean, what did the Persian king have a call himself the king of kings? And yes, uh,
0: right for sure. There is that universal like uh, we're going to go conquer the whole world because obviously we're the chosen people. Yeah, yeah. and Herodotus yeah. Herodotus mocks
2: yeah. Xerxes the, the Persian. <laughs> king for this having him you know when the 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 seed doesn't uh, cooperate with his plans he has it scourged and so on thinking that he's the, the ruler of the elements and everything
0: <laughs> and uh caligula uh uh to to tie it back to rome didn't he uh, he wanted to have a triumph so he went to war with Neptune and he had his soldiers, you know, slash at the waves Ugh. and then they brought back a bunch of shells as their spoils from <laughs> War. fighting the seas. Wow. Oh man, I love
2: that guy. Caligula's the best.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Potter Edmund, I love that guy, Caligula yeah. is the best. <laughs> <laughs>
2: not entirely true (laughs) and there's
1: also this biblical theme about this right uh in like daniel the different empires and it ends up with rome or something i'm not really up to my apocalyptic prophecies but uh rome is the last empire right yes and so after the fall of the roman empire is the end of the world (laughs) right that's i think they has
0: the consensus of the fathers uh yeah, when St. Paul is talking about, uh, he has that mysterious passage where he's talking about how, you know, Christ would have already come again, except for the one who delays yeah. or something like that. The one who restrains, I, I forget the exact terminology.
1: The yeah, catechon, right? The
0: fathers, right. They, they identify. well, who's that? That's uh, the Roman Empire. I remember
1: reading in Suarez, uh, uh, one of his polemics against, I think it's Suarez, uh, against the Protestants who said that the Pope was the Antichrist. And he said, well, the Pope can't be the Antichrist because the Roman Empire still exists. And they didn't have a comeback because the, the, the fathers all agreed on that. <laughs>
0: uh, so, so this is an interesting point. So maybe we could talk about this. So the, there's another sort of empire that Aristotle rejects, that Augustine accuses Rome of being, that the Romans try very hard to see themselves as not being, uh, Maybe we could tie this in with more with the the, the modern notion of nation, because we talked about nation a little bit, but we haven't talked about the modern notion of nation, which is commonly taken to be different, and which I, I do think is, is a, a different understanding of what nation is. Pedro, could you tell us a little bit about what what's the modern notion of nation?
1: Right, so we, we were...
0: Your friend wrote that brilliant piece on uh, sovereignty.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think, I think there is um, – so we were talking about before how nation is kind of, in the original sense, a kind of pre-political uh, thing about where you're born and your descent and so forth. But now I think the modern notion of nation is, is, is linked up with the modern nation of the state um and so if we want to avoid you know semantic confusion we can just use the the term state to refer to you know the modern view of political order um so there's two points here one is the point about the nation which is uh you know the nationalist point which is uh each each gen, each each gens each nacio should have its own political uh order uh, you know the Germans should rule themselves the French should rule themselves you know the Ghanaians should rule themselves and so forth uh, and that's a claim uh, uh, that's a 19th century I think uh, view mostly right um, which is a reaction um, or not maybe not a reaction but is opposed certainly to the view of the empire that is capable of bringing all these nations together, right? right. Um, and that's 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 like an ideology that you know is nineteenth, twentieth century. Um, but the, the 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 other point is 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 about what the state is, um, and that is not necessarily linked to nations because you know you can have states that cover various various nations, um, and the point there is that uh, the moderns view political order as based on what I'm going to call sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is a word that means a lot of things, but here we can use it to mean just uh, basically a total absolute principle of power. Um, And it's just whatever the sovereign says is the law, and there's no other source for law, and um, there's no limit, really, to what the sovereign can do
3: terms of law this is coercive military power right or police power or something like that yeah right right, right. right. exactly um and it all
0: and this i mean like we could go, we could take the i'm sure the genealogy goes back further than this but the the sort of jumping off point uh at least as as that people usually go back to uh, this would be hobbes right i think he's yeah. the one who really brings it in and 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 for sure, he and didn't Bowden. make up the idea out of whole cloths, but uh, he's sort of the start of this modern notion really becoming but popular. Is,
3: is is Hobbes is Hobbes the? Well, I guess in which sense is Hobbes the inventor of this kind of sovereignty? Did he discover it because it was already happening in fact, or did he come up with the idea and people implement? I think you know, I, I think it was the former. Yeah, right?
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it has to do with a lot of things. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna claim to be a historian of the, of the notion, but I think it has to do with things like uh, you know, the Protestants and, and their, their desire to have their own religion for each country, right? So, if a prince is yeah. going to have the prerogative to say what religion his people are going to have, that's a pretty big juridical claim about the prince's power. If the, if the prince can yeah. say wh- who you're going to worship and how, then there's really no limit to what the prince can say.
3: <clears throat> right.
0: Right. Yeah. So, So, and this is kind of an interesting point on sovereignty. Uh, You can define sovereignty lots of different ways, uh, but the older view of sovereignty uh, was way less absolute, not just in that there were different people who had maybe disconnected uh, realms in which they were sovereign, but also in that the king was seen and even the Pope was seen as answering to a higher power, whereas for sure the Protestants also think of themselves as answering to God. But uh, once you're able to dictate religion at, at choice, and like you know Henry the Eighth, you know uh, for for super venal reasons, super obviously, uh, I mean there, there's just no you can't even argue that oh no he had high motivation. No, he obviously didn't. Uh, <laughs> you, you, yeah. th- there's no dispute. Uh once you have that, you have this notion of sovereignty, of just being the one who has power, period. Yeah. You know, punct. Who doesn't answer to uh, anyone. So, and
1: there's, a, there's an interesting historical point there, because as he was preparing to make his claim for, you know, being the head of the church and not being responding to, not having uh, to respond to anyone. One of the things that, one of the laws that the, the English Reformation is based on um, is a law that says that England is an empire, It doesn't, it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't have to, you know, uh, there's nothing above it. Uh, And they have to make that claim because that's how they understood the empire. Uh, England was not an empire until then. It was a kingdom and above it was the pope and the emperor. And if you want to kill, you want to kick the pope, you have to declare. you declare yourself.
0: Yeah in fact the kings held it uh, they held it uh uh as sort of uh, in a feudal relationship from the pope. Yeah.
1: England specifically. Yeah. Was a was, was a, a papal fief, yes. yeah. yeah. But you have yeah.
2: I mean you have that anticipated already uh in before in the um in the 14th century the Philip the Fair of France claims against uh Pope Boniface VIII that he has imperium in regio suo, that he has the highest command in his, uh, in his realms in temporal matters, so he has no superior.
3: Right, mm-hmm. right. Oh, I didn't one, know that. One thing that sticks out is um, so outside of England on the continent, the the arrival of this uh, the absolute sovereignty over the choice of religion uh, comes at Westphalia, right? Right. Um, and so, in in that case, it's funny because absolutism or this kind of absolutism is a gift of an international treaty. Yes.
1: Well, uh, I it, maybe it's which, recognizing something that that they already I mean certainly in the case of France that wasn't a gift they already claimed that for themselves. Sure, <laughs> for sure. a couple centuries.
3: Yeah, but but in in central Europe where you know everyone was <laughs> sort of uh fighting terri- territorially I I don't imagine that these small fiefdoms were uh right. just you know, capable of of giving themselves that kind of power necessarily.
0: Right. No, and in in fact, the popes condemned the the Peace of Westphalia, if I recall correctly. Did they not?
3: Yeah, yeah. Wasn't was it was it Innocent the Tenth? I'm trying Who said to that it was it was. Uh, there's some famous uh, bull where he condemns it in, in really hilariously harsh language. I mean, in a sense, the the Peace of Westphalia.
1: Um, I mean, it's it's maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but not that much. In the sense that the peace of Westphalia, in the sense that it sort of makes all these claims um, and cements them in a treaty and whatnot, is kind of the end mm-hmm. of Christendom. It, it, yes. Right? It just, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's
0: a terrible... It's, I mean... It, yeah.
1: Except, maybe of course, I would claim in, in, in Spain, the Christendom's continued. <laughs> but in the rest of Europe, <laughs> and in the Holy Roman Empire, even to an extent, but maybe in the, lands of the, the, the crown lands of the, of the House of Austria, but, but in, the, in the empire itself... It, it ceased to exist as such,
0: right? Right, because I mm-hmm. mean, the, the, the Holy Roman Empire did not, in fact, cease to exist at the at the Peace of Westphalia. What happened, though, is all the German princelings got to go off and pretend to be, uh, uh, you know, supreme to pretend to be God essentially in their in their kingdoms. Yeah. Uh,
1: How can you explain so- that that someone like I think it was the Duke of Prussia, you know, fifty years later, could claim call himself a king? It's only because of that. <laughs> Yeah, you know,
0: I, I'm here for this. This is this is great. The Duke of Prussia, not a real king. As we know, this podcast really is all about finding ways to to show the the evils of Prussia. Uh, uh, so you mentioned Spain, though, and we've we've talked about uh, mystical destinies. So on, on that note. Pedro, would you tell us a little bit about the the yeah. uh, Spain's uh, roles in empire uh, in the older sense, not a nation state empire, but an empire because Spain is itself not uh, it's several different kingdoms at least historically, right? Right. So that's
1: that was the first point I was going to make because Spain, as, as Father noted, <clears throat> England and France are you know from from pretty early on nations that are coextensive with a state. Um, although I'm sure there's some people in Occitans and whatever who would make a claim about France, but more or less, uh, right. that's true, right?
0: Right, and, and even England, you see that, like... Uh, uh, you know,
1: the Welsh or whatever.
0: The Welsh, certainly, and even in, like, uh, you know, there's the, various parts. The Cornish or are, are A little more.
1: Yeah. Cornwall. yeah yeah there's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: cornwall that's what i was thinking of yeah, yeah, yeah. um
1: so but and but,
0: then scotland and ireland who like to pretend not to be english as well <laughs> <laughs>
2: well they were i mean scotland remained a separate kingdom up until the 18th century yeah.
0: no I, I i'm only saying that to troll uh, people are <laughs> good our, our good, <laughs> good I fri- good scottish and irish friends they're of course not the same as england nor is nor is wales but you were saying about...
1: so amounts. Yeah, so I think uh, the, the, the case of Spain is, is, is different because for, for a few reasons. One is that it's not really a, a nation. Um, and now they're trying to... I mean, the error of Franco, <laughs> if you will allow me, is, is to try to apply a nationalist uh, mode of thinking to Spain as such. And that's wrong because Spain is not a nation. Uh, Spain was historically always composed of, of a lot of kingdoms. And, and 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 lordships and so and so forth <clears throat> you know the title of the king of spain was never you know rey de españa that doesn't exist it was king king of castile of aragon and blah 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 uh, so that's one thing the other one is that spain came into existence in a way that's a little different from the other kingdoms or nations of europe in that it came out of the reconquest it's 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 like a crusading nation right. from its from its moment of inception of course it it claims uh it's it's its uh, right to exist from the Visigoths and ultimately from the Romans, but but the modern modern Spain, the kings of Spain came from 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 a crusading uh, people.
0: Yeah, whether or not they trace trace the legitimacy back before the the uh, uh, fall uh, to the uh, Moors, they certainly had to reconquer their own land. Yeah, even yeah. if it was theirs by right.
1: So um, so from the beginning, there was always this kind of sense of Spain as, I'd say, as an imperial notion, because uh, no one in the Middle Ages could claim the right to be called King of Spain, um, but they all saw themselves as Spaniards or Hispanios, Hispanicos, I don't know how you would say it. Um, And then when they they succeeded in kicking out the Moors, um, they had this... um, they continued with this view of themselves as, as um, sort of a mini empire in Europe. España means several kingdoms by definition, and when by descent and by conquest the kings of Spain came to be also kings of you know the Netherlands and much of Italy, all those la- all those lands, even though they weren't you know geographically in the Iberian Peninsula, came to be known as as Españas. One Spain, you know, Naples is a Spain, and the Netherlands right. is another Spain. You know, <laughs> um,
3: this reminds me that you know, you know that Greece is the same way. The 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 uh, uh, Hellas is uh, actually no Athens is the same way. What am I thinking of? Uh, Athens is plural. It's the 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 Athenas, right? So it's this idea of a, a collection of tribes that have settled together anyway sorry i i had a misplaced association
1: um and you know portugal is a spain of course
0: (laughs) and i'm here for this this is great (laughs) naples spain yes netherlands
1: portugal spain (laughs) Spain. uh sign me up (laughs) well there's the spanish
0: netherlands and and of course
1: america pedro america spain Uh, oh for sure america is is is, uh, for sure a spain um, uh, the rightful king of, of America is the king of Castile. This is this is known. Um, um, but but no. So 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 in a way, I think the Spanish nations, the Spanish kings, were were uniquely placed when they came to America and they conquered, you know, America and parts of Asia and so forth. They already were prepared to to see them to 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 establish a kind of imperial polity, because even before uh, the conquest of America. They already had – even if they had the same king, each kingdom had its own laws. Each kingdom had its own uh, way of uh, of conducting themselves, even their own language, the Catalans and the Portuguese and so forth. So in other
0: words, even if there was one man, he didn't have just one crown. He had a whole bunch of right. different – a, there's,
1: a, there's, a, there's an explanation. There's a, a jurist – I can't remember his name right now – who talks about uh, the, the, the term crown of Spain in a technical sense, which just means the crown of Spain is – the blah blah blah. I don't know how you call it. The the accumulation of titles that the king has in each one of his realms. So if you're a citizen of Milan in the 16th century and you want to make a claim against something, you don't go to the king of Castile. You go to the Duke of Milan, even though he's the same person, right? right. right. Um, um, and uh, I'm,
0: I'm reminded of the the wonderful, the, the really moving uh, Habsburg uh, sort of funeral that they give to the to the Holy Roman Empire that, that uh, uh, didn't uh, Otto von Habsburg have?
2: Yes. Yeah, I was uh, there at, where, at Otto von Habsburg's Yeah, they go
0: funeral. to the, uh, it's kind of a, a almost a shabby church. It's uh, the Franciscans, right?
1: Yeah, the Capuchins,
2: so Reformed Franciscans.
1: Oh, Capuchin, right. So where right. he tries to come in and he, he lists they, all his he titles tries to come in, and he says, right, we don't know he you. He says all his
0: titles, we don't know you. And then he comes in and he says all his sort of more personal titles. Right. And they say, we don't know you. And then they knock the third time. and They say, who, who seeks to enter? And he says, Otto, a sinner. Yeah. And they say, we know you well. Come in. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's, it's interesting. Beautiful. Up
2: until the, the Reichsdeputationshauptschluss, the, which sort of nominally abolished the Holy Roman Empire under the influence of Napoleon, up oh. until then, Austria was, um, Austria was just a duchy. So the, the head of the House of Austria was always Holy Roman Emperor. So he had the title Emperor of the Romans. But in Austria, he was just the Archduke of Austria. Austria exactly. was never raised to a kingdom, yeah.
1: So it's, it's kind of, so the, as I was saying off mic, there is this kind of unique historical situation where Spain can become an empire, even though it's not, even though, except for one time, it was ruled by an emperor, properly speaking, which is Charles V, who was both Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain. It was, even though it's true in this sense, it's, it, it's there's a way, there's a sense in which really, sort of the purveyors of the imperial ideal is not in is not just Spain as such but it's really the house of austria in the history of europe it's they who you know in, in all of their dominions both in spain and in the empire ruled in this kind of imperial sense right where they, they 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 had all these fiefs and each fief had its own laws and they respected this principle of subsidiarity but at the same time if there was if there was a need all of them would come together for war. So, for, for instance, one great example of this is, in the case of Spain, is, is, is the, the war against the Dutch Calvinists, which was a, a centuries-long war. But the army of Spain, of what was called the Army of Flanders, was a multinational army. There were Italians and, right. and, 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 right. and, and Flemish and Portuguese. There were even people from the Americas. And they each had their own battalion, but they would go together and they were probably led by some Italian duke or some you know, Flemish count or whatever. Um and so it's really the Habsburgs who 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 kept the flame alive, if you will.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, it's a great uh, yeah, pity that just... they lost the Thirty Years' War because that yeah, no, really, really impaired um Thanks impaired to the, French. the the realization of the of the imperial ideal. Because although the Holy Roman Empire still nominally existed in the Protestant realms after the after the Peace of Westphalia in reality, the the Emperor only had authority in the Crown lands of the House of Austria after that.
1: This is thanks right. to the French. let it be known Back, yeah backstabbing no, it was French. the French
0: yes, it, it was their jealousy, and it was particular one of the particular things that they were worried about was the what happened with Charles V. They were worried that they'd be surrounded if yeah. Austria. Was able to unite all of its lands and to also to to uh, subdue the Protestants in uh, the other Germanic lands, then they would be surrounded and you know their prestige would be outshone and and they were it was essentially the jealousy and fear of the French that that really uh, uh, caused I mean because they, they funded Sweden to come into the war and uh, yeah. ultimately that led to the Peace of Westphalia yeah. So let's say a little more about this modern uh, uh, nation-state, maybe we could call it, because there's state and nation are old terms, but modern nation-state that combines this sort of nationalism with uh, this uh, absolutism of the modern state, which is different in kind than what the ancient theorists were talking about. Although, for sure, there were absolute... Uh, uh rulers, they were just viewed as tyrants, right, right. Uh, So as opposed to uh, claiming that you're making a purely descriptive claim, which is the one of the modern moves, it, uh, you almost never, in my experience find a modern <clears throat> jurist or a modern uh, political thinker who claims to be doing anything other than merely describing. <laughs> uh, but in merely describing, they claim that the sovereign has absolute power with, and not all of them. I mean, there's, uh, uh, Austin, I think says absolute power over humans, you know, humanly speaking, something like that. So that he, he brackets the question of whether there might, they might have to answer to God.
1: Yeah. I mean, one, one way of, of, um, of, uh, or one thing I can add about that is that, um, in a sense, the modern state is, is, is what is, um, is an anti, or as, as Elliot was saying, uh, the modern state as, as, as consecrated in this, the Peace of Westphalia and how it's been, and also as consecrated in the sort of post-World War II, uh, you know, settlement, international law settlement. Uh, the idea there is, there, there is no universal order uh, except, uh, you know, to keep us from killing each other. And uh, because, of, for, among other reasons, because each state claims this, this total, you know, power. Uh, and so there really is no, as you said before, international law is a contradiction in terms. There's no even coherent way of saying how can international law be a law? There is no sovereign in international uh, right. terms. Uh, it's just agreements between, there's kind of a state of nature between, between the states. Um, right.
2: Well, I mean, you do so have before, a kind of moderation of that in the post, immediate post-World War II period Yeah. when you yeah, have a kind sure. of drawing back after people see sort of the horrors of total war um, based on this notion of, of absolute sovereignty, then you have things like the United Nations and the, the Universal Charter of Human Rights, which sees um, limits on political authority that come from uh, something rights that are not based on positive law
1: yeah but in i think in 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 practice, even though that's right in the sort of the sentiment that they had at the beginning right. in practice the only way to enforce human rights is through treaties and right. treaties are th- consent it's through consent it's not really right, right. i mean no international there the, the no international court is going to enforce against the state something that the state hasn't consented to
0: so so but there is a sort of interesting thing at the. I don't know this history all that well, but you've written about it, Potter. At the beginning of the EU, uh, there was a moment when at least some of the people behind that were trying to recapture uh, a sort of uh, Catholic notion of empire, uh, and yes. it, it didn't end up sticking. But there was in the seeds of it. There was this notion of we need Christendom back.
2: Yes and but the the fatal flaw I mean our friend Alan Fimister who's been on the podcast before he he yes. wrote a book about this and he argues i think very convincingly that the fatal flaw um in the the conception of the European Union is that there's no um the the they take kind of a of Jacques Maritain's idea of having a Christendom with a kind of separation of church and state so you want, you want to have the European Union be Christian in the sense that the individual Europeans who form the European Union, they're going to be Christians and they're going to be sort of informing um, this international politics with Christian ideals. And this is going to build up a kind of uh, a new Christendom. But unlike in the sacral age of, of the Middle Ages, Maritain says, in the modern world, you have to have this, uh, at the juridical level, a separation of church and state. And I think Femister shows very um, convincingly that, that that was the seed of its own destruction, because that juridical separation ends up being becoming a normative separation in the sense that the European Union is then not, in fact, uh, animated by Christian uh, truth.
0: This must have been after Maritain uh, ditched uh, uh, Action Française. Yeah, so this uh, is kind of his,
2: kind of his reaction. <laughs> after uh, Pius XI condemns Action Française, it has a very strange effect on Maritain, who is a very impulsive man by character. But he, um, out of kind of an exaggerated obedience to Pius XI, not only does he draw back from what's what's wrong about Action Francaise, but he completely changes his whole political philosophy and becomes kind of this <laughs> excessively liberal thinker after that.
0: Uh, so I I wanted to ask about this. So there's another strain of modern thought which says, you know, uh, absolute authority, you know, political authority is bad. And I mean, you see that in sort of the framing that even Hobbes gives. It's the lesser of two evils. Uh, it's better than a state of nature. That's sort of his, his pitch. Uh, uh, but, so you see this idea that the state has only limited authority over individuals. So you see like, People will deny that the state has the power of life and death over people, even though that's absurd because obviously if you can send people to war, if you can dictate health care policy, if you can dictate any number of ways that we have laws, you know, car safety regulations, the state obviously has the power of life and death over its citizens. But the yeah. idea is that our, our own individual dignity is so great that the state can't, uh, you know, say the death penalty is always unjust. Without getting into the death penalty question which may indeed be bad in today's society, or, or perhaps not. Who knows? Uh, <coughs> bracketing that question very strongly. <laughs> uh, what do we say about that idea that the state only has... Because the way we've described it, it seems like nation-states are all these absolutist, gigantic leviathons. Whereas they see themselves, or at least there's a strand that sees it as they have very limited authority over the individuals because individual dignity is such that, you know, you have to allow individuals to do whatever it is that they yeah. want to do. I
3: think uh, so to go back to Hobbes, uh, you know, Hobbes is a, a mechanist himself. He, he delights in talking about people as a collection of cogs and gears. Right. right? And right. Um, so uh, we can extend that into the state. Um, and see the state as a kind of, uh, mechanism, uh, or, uh, to take a, an analogy from chemistry, you can think of it as uh, a kind of, of a solution, uh, where you have energy states and things are combining and breaking apart and, and all of that. And so the, the modern nation state descriptively, purely descriptively, right? It's just, uh, it's just, uh, Uh, a fact about the current circumstances of humanity, uh, which is that uh, given these resources and these uh, possibilities of human action, this arrangement of coercive uh, ability uh, into this type of uh, uh, government arrangement uh, occupies a low-energy state meaning it's, it's difficult to get out of it. Um, and so it will tend to persist until something comes along and really disturbs it, throws a lot of energy into the system. So like a global plague or, you know, an asteroid uh, or the end of the world or, uh, or alternatively, if something else that's lower energy comes along and we sort of slide down uh, into this new alternative. And I think that um, you know, this is, this is dumb because it's purely descriptive, and I don't think it's actually useful for ordering human behavior, but there's probably a lot of truth to it. I mean if you, if you going back to the earlier question about like uh, why, why did the Spanish uh, Empire uh, do so well in the Americas? or why was England so prosperous uh, in forming all of these sort of island colonies? Uh, or why why did the Assyrians sweep through the Middle East? In all of these cases, they had some sort of advantage that enabled them to exploit the situation because they could uh, sort of insert themselves into the political order of the day uh, at low cost relative to the people who had already uh, been holding on to that power, right? And so... I don't even remember why I started talking about this at this point, uh, but yeah. Well,
0: so the question was, so, so, and, and here's where I want to push you. So yeah, so Hobbes has this idea of we're gonna uh, the 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 nation is the lesser evil, you know, uh, and so we give absolute power to it because we have to, because otherwise it's the state of nature, and then yeah, you and have that's an dumb. idea of that's being, just wrong,
3: right? Obviously right like, but it's it's very I, mean, I don't think anyone i don't think anyone except for like very strange people have have believed that we actually give the state uh absolute sovereignty or the the like hardcore hobbesian line of uh you know the state has the right to kill me because otherwise I would be living in some sort of savage nightmare well, there, uh, there
0: were other people who thought that way, and i mean that continue i mean like uh I think even in the 20th century, there's, a, there's an idea of sovereignty that's very influenced by that. So and I guess my question is, how does that interact with this sort of Kantian
3: but is it located, uh, idea is it... of
0: dignity where the individual is the locus of all rights and the state is only what the individuals have begrudgingly allowed to have happen and the state is thus, by its nature, very, very limited.
1: So I think that the, the the two the two things can coexist because, as as, as Elliot said, it, the, the descriptive claim that you know somehow we we've consented to not kill each other in the jungle and given you know, that's that's obviously absurd, um, right? But the but the but the normative claim about <clears throat> about uh, about sort of the, the the end conclusion of this thought process is that for whatever reason you know maybe this is one of the reasons but for whatever reason the the state the the power of the state cannot be limited in any way now the dignity thing is one of the ways in which we've tried to limit it that power of the state right. but in the end because the state is always seen as an instrument at the service of this other private good or or limited good really there is no limit except whatever serves that private good, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah,
3: in reality, the the limit is uh, when, when does the counter pressure become sufficient to restrain the action of the person holding sovereignty, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so we can describe that by saying, oh, well, human dignity captures when people will sufficiently push back against this. But of course it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you have the idea of human dignity, and this is uh, promoted effectively. People will push back once their their human rights are violated, right? right. Which is a good thing. And so this is this is why um, uh, propaganda and, and right. uh, intellectual formation actually matter for uh, these sort of large scale questions, because what people expect uh, determines to a large extent how they'll act.
1: And this is why sort of the proceduralism that's inherent in liberalism is kind of a guarantee of the limitless power. Because whatever happens through this process is legitimate by definition. Right. So we can do whatever we want. We can kill babies. We can call women men. We can – there is no limit. There is, strictly speaking, no limit. I really liked
0: the way you put it. (laughs) I really liked the way you put it because – You you made it clear that whether or not you start from the sort of libertarian or or the Kantian side of like, oh, people, people, people. And then we give a little tiny bit to the state or if you're more Hobbesian or maybe uh, Schmidtian or and are like the state, the absolute state, the absolute state. uh, Either way, you've made a private good the determining factor of what's going to happen. It's either the private good of the sovereign or it's the private good of yeah, individuals. Yeah. And you you make That's this sort of
1: being served. You make this sort of Rousseau move where you say, um, you know, whatever manifests the, the will or the consent or whatever concept you're trying to use. However, that um, comes to be in terms of, uh, you know, Votes in the Congress or the Supreme Court making a, a, a decision, however you want to call it, it doesn't matter. The decision of the state, as long as it as it manifests that thing, that will or that uh, is going to be legitimate. It's going to be legitimate no matter what. It doesn't matter its content. Unless
0: unless they come to the wrong decision, in which case we'll just keep cranking on the machine and we'll hold more votes. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Well, yeah. well, oh, isn't that the idea? And yeah. It, it's funny because that it serves uh, progressivism. Right. Of course. Because you yes. crank on the machine, and what is the machine doing? Well, it's destroying whatever you fed into it. And so eventually <laughs> what comes out will be the right kind of dust. And yeah. So, As uh, Gladden um, Poppin has you know, said. Well, we can't get gay marriage in the 90s, so let's just yeah. uh, keep pushing at it, do some more votes, and eventually know, we'll, we'll get and it. It's interesting
2: so, the yeah. way that the, this form of sovereignty. I've been reading a new biography of Pope Leo the 13th, um, which just, oh, nice. just came out. It's by a German church historian, Jürg Anesti, who he himself is kind of, you know, has some of the prejudices of modern German theologians. Um, so sometimes he sounds a little bit patronizing when he's talking about Leo the Thirteenth's views, but he's, he's has the virtues <laughs> of a German scholar as well. He's very thorough. He's, he's read all the correspondence of the nuncios' churches in various cities and so on. Um, but, anyways, it's very interesting to see how the the conflict between the Holy See and these various liberal states in the nineteenth century plays out, or, or rather, where what it fo- what questions it focuses on. So, so Leo the Thirteenth emphasizes a lot that the Church is a uh, is a societas perfecta, the Church herself is a complete community, with uh, the ability to to make laws and so on independent of the state. And the liberal theorists of sovereignty, they uh for this is unacceptable to them because the state has to be the final and only arbiter in a particular territory. So right. it's based on, on on individual consent. But everything else has to be integrated in the system. And so you can't have another complete society that all these people also belong right. to that's in the same territory right, and, uh, right. yeah
1: right so this i is think why
0: i mean from the beginning liberal theorists have <clears throat> been almost almost universally i want to say uh hostile to catholicism yes. because catholicism makes such absolute claims and liberals are all themselves in one way or another absolutists yes. and they can't they're like there can't be two right. yes there can only be one and they're right I,
1: they're right
0: uh, yeah i do find it funny though so so Wait, what sense just are they
1: right how, they're right that there cannot be two <laughs>
0: well there can't be two in the sense of there can't be liberalism and right 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 uh, oh no 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 yeah, there can yeah, yeah.
1: Be,
2: you can't have there, temporal there can and spiritual authority
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah what i mean yes. is you can't have two competing claims uh to absolute authority or to abs right. or, or or about what is right
0: Right, in the same sphere. Yes. You, have to, you have to have either you have to have a, a separation of spheres of some sort or you have to have a subordination or some sort of ordering. Uh, unity is the principle. There, there,
1: this reminds me of a quip from Donoso Cortes who says something like, today, in, this, in our day and age, there are only really two options. It's either Catholicism or atheism.
2: There you go, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> well, the, the other thing I just wanted to, to mention, Elliot talked about how absurd... Hobbes's view of the state of nature was, uh, and the competing view in the Enlightenment was Rousseau's, which you think Hobbes is absurd. It's the same. <laughs> you read about Rousseau's description it's, of yeah. what what it was like before cities, and you're like— has this man ever been in the woods? has yeah. he ever been camping it 's horrible it 's yeah. awful
1: it 's insane. and
0: your children are getting up to go use the bathroom the entire night no
1: <laughs> so uh, if, if if I may, I just wanted to add one thing about the last ta- thing that you mentioned, Potter, which is the subordination right, and how that plays out with the empire so um, uh, in in a sense. Um, the empire is, or the claim about universal rule in the tempor- in temporal or in temporal things, is is perfectly co- consistent with the notion of the Gelasian hierarchy, right? Because, right. Um, as I said before, international law exists, but it also needs an enforcer. Um, the jus gentium is real; there are obligations and rights um, pertaining to peoples and to individuals. With respect to the universal common good of mankind, that that exists, um, but there has to be somehow a way to make those rights and obligations, um, uh, you know, real, claimable, right. enforceable. Right. And so, in the case of the ch- in the case of of the contents of international law, the church is the one that really can serve as a safe guide, right? In terms of this is what Pius the Eleventh says in Ubi Arcano. Right. He says right. the use the, the 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 final and authoritative interpreter not only of the natural law and the moral law, but also of the jus gentium is the Church, because she's the only one that that has this universal scope, and can see all yeah. the peoples and can see all their needs and can interpret the laws correctly. But what we're missing is an emperor, an emperor who can yes. take that and enforce it. So in the case of Historically, in the case of, 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 of the Spanish Empire, this is how I think a lot of the kings. Of course, not all of them. I'm not going to make a claim about they're all perfect. But this is so. This was so. For example, Philip the Fifth, Philip the Second's wars against the Dutch Calvinists and against the English, in a sense, were trying to enforce the jus gentium, the bring right. come bring Christendom back. This is our. Right. This is what we're fighting for, right. um, and and that's what we need now. Instead, we have a Carthaginian Beautiful. empire.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I feel inspired despite the sort of uh, bleak, uh, bleak state of affairs as it may currently exist by your rousing words. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, you know, uh, bring back the Habsburgs. I'm, I'm all yes. for you. Uh,
1: <laughs> Just for the record, though, note, I, I can... need to correct Potter on one thing. Uh oh, the head go of the House it. of Austria was not always the Holy Roman Empire, because the no, head of the House of Austria correct. was the King of Spain until the death of Charles II in 1700. Oh, okay.
0: There you go. <laughs> 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 yeah, so they would give. It was interesting. They would give the, the Holy Roman Empire to the, to the junior like, branch, uh, junior branch, a okay. lot of the time. Yep, as uh, it, sort of their own internal division yeah, of yeah, yeah. Uh, who got what title. Who, who but the uh, this was wonderfully fun. And, uh, uh, hopefully only friends listen to this. <laughs> may, may none of my enemies listen to this. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this was a great time. I really enjoyed it. I was glad that Elliot was able to join us briefly. He made some good points. And, uh, Pedro, it's always so lovely having you on. We're going to have to have you back Thank again. Thank you so much. One thing I wish we had talked a little bit was, uh, uh, sort of China but I am so ignorant about that that I, I yeah we should have get
2: we should get say. Gladden Pappin on to talk yeah, about China. Yeah.
0: yeah sure. Gladden or or Vincents another guy who knows a lot about it. Uh oh, but that's Gladden true. for sure we should have on some. And we also need to eventually uh,
2: have a, an episode on immigration cuz this is what people hate me for on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but they also I do remember when
0: we posted the uh uh the thing from Grenier, a certain nameless uh, uh leftist uh, got all angry oh, yeah. and <laughs> started calling vile names yeah that's over, interesting but then he, over, he later he
2: later changed his mind and pinned the grenier to his tweet saying you have to read this if you want to follow me <laughs>
0: Really? Well, see, I've, yeah. I, I've, I, we've been mutually blocked since uh, since years. I now, don't know what his position so is now, no. but
2: he went he went through a pro empire phase as well.
1: His position yeah. is not is an is certainly an incoherent position. I'm almost certain. Whatever it is, it's probably totally incoherent. whatever
0: it
2: is. It's wrong. <laughs> yeah,
0: whatever it is, I'm against it. In yes. the words of uh, Poucho Marx. <laughs>